Um, so while you're having your second drink, um, mm-hmm. I'm actually, I'd love to go back in time and talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is squirrels and nut caching. Now, I don't know exactly how this became near and dear to my heart, but I don't know. I heard Craig Heller talk about it a while ago, and I wrote a blog post about it, but squirrels, squirrels, are, squirrels hide. Are cute. Squirrels are adorable. <laughs> um, and pretty uh, Machiavellian, right? They are. And... So the question is, so squirrels go around hiding nuts in the forest to save for later, presumably, and then go out and, and but how, how, how well do they remember where they put these nuts? And, <laughs> um, yeah, can you, can you tell us a little bit about squirrel foraging and how you got interested in this? Sure. So let me first say that a lot of my undergraduate research was on squirrel caching, which is squirrels hiding things, and squirrel pilfering, which is squirrels stealing from one another. Um <laughs> And the method that we used to study this was that we got all these undergrads in a room. First of all, I called every pecan orchard in Texas asking for 50 pounds of unshelled pecans, <laughs> which garnered a lot of confused responses. You know, what, what on earth do you need with 50 pounds of unshelled pecans? <laughs> and then you explain that you're going to feed them to squirrels, and it just gets better from there. So <laughs> what we did is that we tagged each individual pecan with a little metal tag. We went out and buried them in the forest and marked the locations very carefully on a map. And then for weeks, we went out every day with metal detectors to figure out which ones the squirrels had stolen from us. (laughs) (laughs) Which is quite the thing. Um, Were the squirrels watching you hide them? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so they have an unfair advantage once they figured out what was going on. Um, They were like, yes, these humans (laughs) are giving us food. And squirrels actually... You jest, but squirrels are actually very aware of whether other animals are watching them cache. Because they're going through all this effort to find acorns and walnuts and pecans and bury them. And then if somebody else is watching them, that squirrel will presumably just go and dig it up right then and eat it. Hmm. Right? It doesn't do you any good to hide your acorns if another squirrel is watching. Hmm. And so squirrels have been known and shown to, um, if they see you watching, they will bury a rock instead. What? Yeah. So they are deceitful. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. In addition to being Machiavellian. (laughs) Little creatures. Um, Yeah. And so (laughs) that's what we were up to. What proportion of them do do they remember? You know, I don't know that we have a good answer to that. Well, I I found this amazing quote uh, when I was researching about this before. (laughs) This was uh, from Cuppy, 1949. Uh, which naturally you're familiar with as a squirrel researcher. Squirrels have been criticized for hiding nuts in various places for future use and then forgetting the places. While squirrels do not bother with minor details like that, they have other things on their mind, such as hiding more nuts where they can't find them. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. Well, there's sort of two angles on that. One is that it seems to be the case that squirrels remember generally where they left something. It's that phenomenon where you walk into a room and you go, I know my keys are in here somewhere. Right, so they they know to within maybe three feet where they left an acorn, um, and then from there they go sniffing. Hmm. So squirrels do better at finding their old caches if, say, the soil is wet, right, because hmm. it allows the smell signals to travel more readily. Hmm. Um, and so people who study wild squirrels in laboratories burying things in sandboxes have discovered <laughs> <laughs> that if the sand is wet, the squirrels do better. Hmm. Yeah. And squirrels, I mean, it's not that they're completely random. They do remember. They get irritated with you if you steal caches from them. Right? So. 
we asked Craig Heller when he was in about this phenomenon where when squirrel, when ground squirrels hibernate, they lose lots of their synapses. And we think in neuroscience that synapses are very important for having memories <laughs> of what you have done and what has happened to you. But do you, I don't know if you studied squirrels that hibernate, but do you think that they would remember where they put things the next spring? Are the, are the nuts that they're hiding for use like tomorrow or next year? Yeah, so largely they're for use over winter once all the tree fruit population has sort of dried up. So once the oak trees have stopped dropping acorns and the pecans have all come off the tree and there's nothing obvious to eat right here, right now, they go searching for their old caches. And then presumably in the spring, more fresh food comes up. I see. But I was studying squirrels in central Arkansas where there's really no need to hibernate unless you're a real rather weather wuss. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Winter is really the pleasant time to be in Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, tree species, I think, sort of count on squirrels to forget some fraction of the seeds they bury, right? This was actually a study we were doing when I was an undergraduate, and I went I was really interested in evolution and in coevolution, which is in which is the case where two species that might not be related at all evolve a close relationship with each other. Particular flowers that are specialized to be pollinated by bats or by hummingbirds, and then both the hummingbird and the flower evolve to become more and more matched with each other. Well, this also seems to happen between trees that bear nuts and squirrels that bury nuts. And so what we're seeing in the literature was that squirrels... So squirrels are clever, and so they take more valuable caches, so nuts that have more calories and more fat and they're larger. If, they're, hmm. if they find a more valuable food item, they bury it farther apart. Hmm. Right, and so if you have a bunch of tiny acorns, you can bury them sort of close together. But if you find, like, big, juicy walnuts, you're going to bury one, but you're going to bury the next one really far away because you don't want to risk that if somebody finds your first walnut that they can just sort of dig around and find your next one. Hmm. And so they will bury acorns at some distance from each other. They'll bury pecans even further apart. They'll bury walnuts further apart than that. And it turns out that they bury walnuts at the distance you would bury walnuts if you were planting a walnut orchard, which is kind of nutty. That's crazy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nicely done. Waiting for that one. Mm -hmm. And so one project that we tried and didn't quite succeed at was to see whether this was also true for pecans. So is this sort of a general principle of squirrel tree evolution are the trees manipulating the fat and calorie content of their nuts to get squirrels to bury them at a particular distance since that seems to be the primary means of these (laughs) seeds getting planted or is that just like a happy coincidence with walnuts or is the the size of an oak determined by a squirrel's preference for where to bury (laughs) it i like to think that the plants are in charge it's sort of a more scandalous (laughs) hypothesis (laughs) but um well plus it's one squirrel that's planting a bunch of different tree species right Hmm. um so yeah but it was just it was interesting question to be chasing down and so what did you find with the pecans we didn't find anything with the pecans because what my professor and i thought was that we would need to germinate the pecans in order to test this hypothesis which is make the pecans ready to sprout but pecans are really complicated and they need sort of like a freezing period and a period where they're wet in order to germinate. Mm. And so what this meant was that I had like cold, wet buckets of pecans all over my dorm room for months. (laughs) (laughs) My roommate loved me. (laughs) (laughs) 
But that they didn't really germinate, and that experiment didn't really go anywhere. So I'm still oh, curious yeah. about the squirrel pecan coevolution hypothesis. And so the I mean the real question is like what kind of dopamine rush the squirrels get when they find <laughs> their nuts versus when they misplace their nuts. This could all come around full circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was actually wondering about urban squirrels, all these squirrels in the city. Do you know of anything that they have adapted to live so well in the city? I know I know some of them back in Berkeley they would just steal my bagel. Like they just walk up and take it. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I've seen them steal hacky sacks at the University of Illinois. Are you what? serious? Deals with little bean things people kick around. Yeah, I saw a squirrel just out run, of the air? run into the middle of a hacky sack circle, scoop it up and run away. <laughs> and then here go like fifteen hipsters chasing <laughs> The squirrel um, I think, unfortunately, in urban environments, squirrels mm. eat more refuse than I maybe see. is good for them. Yeah. You know, you've seen the squirrels with the raccoons all emerging from the dumpster behind the cafeteria. <laughs> um, and, I, and, you know, people feed them, which is probably also not optimal. Mm-hmm. But... Interesting. Yeah. So you made it. You made a comment about how you, you like, you like the, the plants being in charge as sort of a... Um, a more scandalous hypothesis, which I liked. <laughs> so I, I understand that you have ideas about about plant evolution, why it's or plant biology, and why it's so important to study. Even though you are a mammalian biologist for the most part. Oh, it's true. I love botany, and actually, when I started as an undergraduate, I definitely wanted to do uh, botany and botany research. I've spent more time reading. Peterson's Field Guide to Edible Wild Plants than I've had my nose in any other book, for sure. Um, Yeah, I just think it's really interesting, and the details stick with me. You know, I can tell you, well, this species of elm tree has hairs on the undersides of the leaves, whereas Mm -hmm. this tree is smooth, you know? (laughs) And I don't know why those details stick with me. Um, You know, in the post-apocalypse, the botanists are going to win, you know? (laughs) We're going to be able to find all the food and all the medicine and everything else. Right. Once once aspirin is no longer available, you can go and find your willow bark. I know what that that. tree looks like. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I just think it's fun. Plus, my metronome, my internal metronome ticks fairly slowly relative to other people, in particular relative to, say, birders. You know, birders can watch birds flitting around and they're like, did you see that red flash on the underside of the wing for just that second before it landed on the branch? I'm like, no. (laughs) No, I didn't. But planes just sit there as long as you want while you... (laughs) <laughs> figure out exactly what subspecies of sweet pea you're looking at, which is great. I understand you went to China as an undergrad to actually study plants, I guess, but more specifically to look at, you know, Western versus Eastern medicine, which I guess, you know, plants are kind of involved with. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Well, so one reason I was interested in botany as an undergraduate is that there are many, many thousands of year old traditions around the world of, as using plants as remedies for things. And, you know, some of it, there's little evidence that there's a scientific or biological basis for these plants working as remedies. You know, there's old traditions like, well, if the leaf of the plant has three lobes, it looks like a liver, it must be good for your liver. Hmm. You know, walnuts look like your brain, they must be good for your brain. So right? that doesn't, that sounds like some kind of plant phrenology. And... Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, but some of these things, you know... Some of these traditions have been alone for a long time because there really is something to them. And I thought that, you know, Nick mentioned aspirin. Aspirin is a great example of a natural product that we use in modern day times to treat aches and pains. But in fact, more than half of our current um, pharmaceutical compounds are derived from 
natural compounds. So it's not always the case that a natural plant-derived compound is safe and ready to use repeatedly by millions of people for whatever ailment, but perhaps with a little bit of chemical tweaking in the lab, you can make that compound that you're starting from more potent or more safe or whatever it is, right? And plants and bacteria and other living organisms can manufacture these really complicated chemical compounds that are really difficult to synthesize in a lab. Um, we haven't yet figured out how that biochemistry works, right? Hmm. So it's much easier to start from the plant or the bacteria or whatever it is and go from there rather than trying to synthesize it from chemicals in a test tube, right? <laughs> so there's a genus within the sunflower family that includes the plant that we use to make the hallucinogenic compound in absinthe, and it also includes Artemisua annua, which is the sweet wormwood, and in Chinese it's called qinghao, which is the yellow-flowered um, plant. And in China, it just grows like a weed, like out of the cracks of the roads, and people farm this stuff. And it's currently our frontline, most efficacious, least resistance drug to treat malaria. Really? Really. Huh. And the reason that we, in modern times, discovered this is that in the 1960s, when China was getting involved in the Vietnam War, for obvious reasons, they were looking for an efficacious anti-malarial drug. And so Mao Zedong issued a top-down order to thousands of scientists across the country called Project 523, in which they were going to look for um, treatments for malaria. So it was this three-pronged thing. Some of the scientists were looking for ways to prevent people from getting malaria in the first place. Uh, some of them were going to try to, to create anti-malarial drugs de novo, biosynthetically in the lab, and some of them were assigned to look through the thousands of, you know, texts that are hundreds and thousands of year old, years old that describe traditional Chinese treatments for disease. And what they uncovered was that there was this plant, Artemisia annua, that showed up in many, many different treatments for something like recurring fever, which sounds a lot like malaria. And Sure enough, the, I got to meet the chemists who uncovered this compound and first isolated the compound and figured out what it actually looks like. And their names are Li Ying, Wu Yulin, and one of them actually won the Lasker Prize in 2006 for this discovery, and her name was Tu Yoyo. Um, they think that these scientists are coming up for a Nobel before too terribly long. Huh. Um, so the project was that I got to follow the whole food chain from the farmers who grow the plant in their fields, to the brokers who buy the plants off the farmers and sell it to the chemical extraction company, got to go to the chemical extraction company and they sell it to Novartis. So I got to go to the Novartis plant where they package it into little pills and neat little boxes that say, you know, made in, made in the People's Republic of China on them. Hmm. And then those folks uh, sell this drug largely to the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, other people like this, um, to distribute it in the places where there's lots and lots of malaria, which is large swaths of the world. And, you know, without the knowledge from these hundreds and thousands of year old texts, we wouldn't have our current most efficacious treatment for malaria. That's really interesting. Yeah. It was an awesome project. <laughs> yeah. How long were you there? I was there for about a month and a half. Okay. Oh it was just gosh. really neat to see... You know, to shake the hands of the people who spend their day in the fields growing the plant and see them, like, spreading it out on the street to dry. And some of them very laboriously take 
what looked like enormous brooms and beat the leaves off the dried branches and other people <laughs> just lay them in the road and let cars drive over them to knock all the leaves off, oh, really? which is fantastic. And then they bag up Very all these clever. loose leaves and sell them, sell them to Novartis, who extracts the chemical to put them into these pills. It's really wow. great to see how the whole chain, chain fits together. Do the, do the people growing the plants, do they know where, the, where this is going, what it is for? Um, I think for the most part, Sort of the difficult lesson in this project was that, you know, you always want these malaria drugs and these drugs that treat these diseases for people in places where there's not a lot of money. You want them to be as cheap as possible, right? But it turns out that the farmers who are growing the plants back in China are just as poor as the people who need the treatments. Mm. And so I think for the most part, the reason people grow the plant in China is that they can get a reasonable, they can get a better price for this plant than they can for, say, tobacco, but if the price of the plant drops, then they switch back to growing tobacco. Huh. Um, so there's a lot of economics there. I there's guess. a lot of economics involved. And one thing you might have noticed from my description of the project is that there's a lot of middlemen involved. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, the, there's these brokers who come to the farmers and gather up all the leaves and, and you know, they take their cut. Mm-hmm. Right? And then they go to the extraction company. The extraction company takes their cut. Somebody else buys it from the to Novartis and so on and so on. Right? Um, I think now, actually, there's a company in North Bay that's getting bioengineered yeast to produce the chemically active compound in the artemisinin plants, mm-hmm. which is both um, fantastic and a little bit scary for all the people in this in mm-hmm. this current food chain, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of um... – actually, here's one, one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, – so you've gone – a long way from, you know, studying pilfering, pilfering in squirrels and the production of anti-malarial drugs. And now you're looking at um, how the reward system works in rats mechanistically and how we can connect it to human um, to human um, neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, as as you are you're sort of coming towards the end of your graduate school experience, do you do you have thoughts for other graduate students about how to sort of find your way intellectually in this sort of very broad arena of what is possible in science? What do you do to follow your interests in science? Yeah, well, I think part of part of finding the right question to study is that your motivation almost can't be to solve the enormous question that's associated with it. You know, so if your motivation for studying risk-seeking in rats is that you're going to solve risk-seeking in humans and you're going to implement genius policy that makes people make more rational decisions about their money and about their day-to-day lives, like, you're going to burn out on that, right? It's just such a big question. You can't do it alone, right? And a lot of science is done in, you know, small niche labs at this point where you're just going to be working on a small part of that. So you want to be looking for something where just talking about it, just talking about the basics of what you're actually doing in your tiny day-to-day experiments brings you joy and excitement, mm-hmm. then that's probably a better bet than the question you think is going to save the world. Hmm. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Brains and Bourbon. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. So uh, come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Lucy O'Brien, a new assistant professor of molecular and cellular physiology here at Stanford. 
Uh, Brands and Bourbon is a production of Rare Right West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Nick Weiler, Julia Turan, and myself, Ada Yee. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, Neurotalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.